Good morning, church. What a joy to be together today. Amen? I'll tell you guys, saying it's a joy to be together doesn't always mean it's happy to be together. I don't know about you guys. And listen, that's not a dig on you guys. You guys are great. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes, like sometimes you walk into church and it's the culmination of what God has been doing in your heart all week long and it's such a celebratory, beautiful thing. And sometimes you drag your rear end through the door because it's just been that kind of week and you need to, you need to be around brothers and sisters. We are of the gospel's true, amen? I would say it's a little more the second in the Tunnel House this week, but it's all good. God is faithful and it truly is a joy to be together. So I'm glad you guys are here. Thank you, by the way, for, for giving me some freedom last week to go and serve a sister church in our association. I know that was, that's a sacrifice for us, but man, what a, what just, um, ooh, Holy Spirit is with us today. What a, what a beautiful thing to get to do, to just to get to be, even as a local church, to get to be brothers and sisters to one another and serve one another in their need. And so over the next couple months, I may end up heading out to redemption again. So please continue to keep that church and Pastor Brandon in your prayers. Um, God is good. He is working there in really, really cool ways. Um, but, you know, it's also a painful, painful situation for them. So today we're continuing our series in Matthew. So if you want to grab your Bibles and turn over to Matthew 8, that's where we're going to be today. By the way, if you're visiting with us today and you don't happen to have a Bible with you, I want you to hear. We at Emmanuel Fellowship really believe in the importance of access to God's Word. There are house Bibles around the room. You're welcome to grab one of those for today. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to take that home. Or talk to one of the pastors and we will give you one that does not have microscopic print in it. Uh, I'm not even that old and I can hardly read those pew Bibles. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's rough. Uh, but anyway, we're in Matthew 8 today. And, and guys, I am, I'm excited for where we're going today. I think in some ways, this text is going to feel a little bit like a repeat of where we were a few weeks ago when we landed out the Sermon on the Mount. But I actually think that's intentional. See, one of the ways Matthew tends to structure his telling of the gospel is that he gives you a chunk of Jesus' preaching that teaches about the kingdom of God, and then he'll often follow it up with a chunk of narrative that shows those kingdom of God principles in action. And so I think what we're going to see played out over these miracle narratives in Matthew 8 and 9, a lot of that really is just showing us the meat of what Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount for the last several chapters. So I think it's going to be cool today to see, we've heard some of the teach, and now we're going to get to see some of it play out. I think it's going to be good for us. To that end, what we're talking about today essentially comes down to this. We're talking about idolatry and how it relates to following Jesus. I think what we're going to see in our text today is a theme that Jesus comes back to continually over the course of his ministry and throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And that's simply this, guys. It's hard to follow Jesus. It's difficult. It, it requires sacrifice. It means giving up the desires of this world and giving up the idols of our flesh. It is a painful and difficult task to undertake. But Jesus tells us it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it because Jesus is the only one actually worth following. He's God. He is the real God, the genuine Messiah. He's actually in control. He actually has authority. And he actually makes it possible for you and I to follow him. We don't have to measure up to some perfect standard because Jesus measures up on our behalf. Can you think of a God more worth following than that? Beloved, Jesus is worth giving your life to. And I think we're going to see that played out in the text today. So read with me. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18, we read this. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. Now, a scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So as he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. 
But suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waters, but Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. In this beloved is the word of the Lord. Pray with me today. Father, we ask today, humbly but afresh, we need you, Lord. We need you to be the one who speaks to us today. We need you, Lord, to be the one who does your ministry to our hearts. Encourage us, Jesus, where we are exhausted and spent and in need of gospel encouragement. Convict us, Jesus, where our heels are dug in on sin and idolatry we don't want to let go of and even areas of hurt and brokenness and sin that we are as of yet unaware of. Remind us, Jesus, of the beautiful truths of the gospel that we have lost and forgotten in the busyness of our day-to-day life in this cursed world. Jesus, draw us to your gospel today. Spirit, we need you to do this work. We need you to be the one who ministers to our hearts, who opens our eyes, opens our hearts, gives us an openness to hear from you. So God, we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So what's actually going on here? I think it's important to note before we kind of get into our text, we're picking up in the middle of a chunk of narrative that's all meant to go together. So Matthew chapter eight, kind of, kind of, and in, in, in nine to some extent, collects kind of these this series of narratives that show us a picture of Jesus's ministry in the regions of northern Palestine, surrounding the Sea of Galilee. Now, I don't want to get like too heady and boring with you, but if you go to the back of your Bible and you look at that map of Palestine in the time of Jesus, there is kind of this north-south division, the southern area of Judea where Jerusalem and the temple is. That's where some of the big scenes happen. That's where Jesus's arrest and trial and death and resurrection happen, but the majority of Jesus's ministry happens in the northern part of that region in the area called Galilee and the surrounding areas, and these are kind of the boonies of Palestine. This is kind of the country where the less educated, poorer folk hang out, and Jesus does the majority of his ministry amongst these people in the communities that surround the Sea of Galilee, this this inland giant lake, right, that's in the middle of that area. Matthew, I think, he, he often, like, orders together narratives around a thematic grouping. This is an important piece for us to remember as we go through some of these chunks of narratives. One of the things Matthew intentionally does is he goes back and forth between teaching and narrative and teaching and narrative. And even though he generally is going to follow a pretty close close chronology of Jesus' life, there are times when it seems like he's telling one story about Jesus and then kind of goes, oh, and this also this one thing happened. Oh, and also one time he did. Oh, and also that kind of reminds me, like he kind of just groups things together by the theme sometimes. And and again, none of that breaks the general chronology of the book, but it's important to remind ourselves of that because it makes sense of just how how incredibly orderly Matthew's writing is, as though Jesus strategically looped, like, grouped together all of his healing miracles, and then he walks over here, and but on to him. It's more how, more how Matthew chooses to tell us the story, right? So chapter 8 begins with this series of healings. This is what Jim talked about last week, although I have to say, I'm assuming that's what Jim talked about last week. I wasn't here, and for some magical reason, no digital record was kept of what happened. So who knows? Who knows? I mean, I trust Jim implicitly, but I also have a moment where I'm like, it's pretty convenient. The one Sunday that's not recorded is the one I'm not here. So anyway, what I'm saying is if Jim said something about me, I need you to tell me, okay? That's offline. You can do that later, but you're with me, right? Okay, good. I'm sorry. So Matthew 8 opens with this series of healing narratives. We see Jesus heal a leper. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then there's just kind of this culmination of this, like, look at all the healing ministry he did in that area. And these narratives, they have a bearing on our text today for a couple of reasons. The first one is this. Remember Jesus said, remember what Jesus says to the centurion when he heals his servant? Do you guys remember this from last week? He says he hasn't seen such great faith amongst all the Jews of Israel. 
Now that's interesting. That's an important statement. One that's going to be contrasted with the way Jesus comments on his closest followers in our text today, right? This non-Jewish Gentile oppressor has greater faith than the people who've given up everything to follow Jesus. It's an interesting contrast, so hold that in your back pocket because we're going to come back to that in the end. Second, remember that Matthew has used these series of healings to remind us that Jesus isn't just a teacher. There were lots of theologians and preachers and rabbis in this day, but Jesus is fulfilling messianic ministry. The text we read last week, it ends the series of healings by reminding us the connection to the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. Jesus' ministry is specifically messianic ministry. And then lastly, if you look at chapter 8 as a whole, remember we're looking at just the middle of it, but if you look at it as a whole, you're going to see this general progression that highlights the extent of Jesus's authority and power in his ministry. He can heal sickness. But you have to remember, there were lots of people in this day and time who claimed to be faith healers. Nothing like today and how things go, but back then at least there were lots of people who claimed to be faith healers, but Jesus doesn't just heal. He also, as we see in our text today, has authority over the creation itself. And as we'll see in our text next week, he has authority over the spiritual realm. Jesus is a real Messiah. His power, his authority is real. The curse submits to him. He tells sickness to cease and it obeys the creation submits to him. He rebukes winds and waves, and they obey. The spirits submit to him. He tells demons to be quiet and stop bothering people, and they obey. This isn't just some kooky faith healer from the boonies who's got a new teaching. Jesus is the Messiah. He's doing something real. He's doing something new, and he's doing something powerful. Now, our text opens with the people in the crowds following Jesus beginning to realize this. It's starting to settle in. You remember how the Sermon on the Mount ended, right? The whole crowd was amazed because Jesus taught as one who had authority. He wasn't like their scribes and their teachers. He was unique. Now, we as the reader know well, that's because he's God, right? But they didn't know this yet. They're just hearing this guy teach going, man, there's something different about this guy. I don't know what it is. And as his ministry progresses and the Holy Spirit moves through Jesus in these powerful supernatural ways and people began to be healed and people began to be set free, it starts to click with people. And crowds begin to crowd around Jesus. And they do so primarily because of this ministry of miracles. Guys, essentially, th this is a conflict that exists throughout most of Jesus' ministry. It's in all four of the Gospels. It's the conflict between Jesus and his followers and Jesus and the crowds. It, it, it's a real thing, a theme you seem that pops up in all four tellings of the story, which is that as Jesus does these miraculous signs, there are those who realize, oh my gosh, this is Messiah, and they give themselves over fully to dedicate and follow after him. But there's also a whole lot of people who are like, dang, free healing? Dang, free food? Dang, cool stuff? I'm, I'm down for this. And the crowds mob Jesus. If, if you read the same section of text narrative in Mark in his telling, he talks very specifically about how bad it gets in Capernaum where, where, where Jesus is staying in Peter's family house. It gets to the point where they literally can't sleep or eat meals because day and night strangers are traveling in from all over the region and bum rushing this house to say, do stuff for us, do miracles for us, heal us, give to us. And Jesus in his kindness and his love, his generosity just goes, okay. And he just keeps ministering and ministering and ministering and ministering. And it gets to the point where they kind of go, hey, we can't keep hanging out here. They literally had to pick up the furniture in the house and shove it into storage to like fit more people in there. And so our text picks up with Jesus going, hey, we got to take a break. We're going to take a break. So let's get in the boats and head to the other side of the sea. Because remember, the crowds, it's not that some of them aren't coming to follow Jesus. Some of them are. But in general, you see this differentiation between the disciples and the crowds. The disciples are those who've given themselves over to the kingdom of God. The crowds are those who are there for what they're getting, right? And the crowds are beginning to actually 
strangle out the real ministry of Jesus, burning him and his followers out. And so Jesus says, okay, okay, let's take a break. He tells his disciples to grab some boats. They're going to head across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the east coast of the Sea of Galilee is this region called the Decapolis. And you hear about it a few times over the course of the Gospels. And Jesus had some level of influence and ministry in that area. People from that region traveled to hear Jesus. But in general, the Decapolis was a non-Jewish part of Palestine. And so this Jewish rabbi's ministry is just going to be less influential. It's going to give some more space for him and his followers to be a little more anonymous, to get some rest and to get a break. And so they decide to head to that area. And even though Jesus hasn't formally called his 12 disciples yet, he has already called Peter, James, and John. He already has connections in the Galilean fishing industry. So he tells us, guys, hey, grab some boats. We're going to head away. We're going to get away and chill out and calm down and get some rest in because this is nuts. Now, the boats that existed in the Sea of Galilee, these fishing boats, this is actually kind of really cool if you nerd out on some of this history archaeology stuff, but we actually have one. They, they found one buried in the mud in the Sea of Galilee from around the time of Jesus' life, a boat that it was rotted out so that they scuttled it, and it sank into the mud and preserved. It's in a, it's in a museum. You can look up pictures of it. It's really interesting. But, but these boats the Galilean fishermen used on the Sea of Galilee, they're kind of unique boats. They're sailboats. They're sail-driven, but they have a very shallow tub. They're very shallow and wide because they need to be able to stay balanced when they're pulling up these big, huge drag nets, and they need to have a big, huge, wide deck to spill out all the fish on. So it creates kind of an interesting piece with these boats. They're big and flat and wide, and they're great for fishing, but they're terribly dangerous in deep water. They're not built for weathering storms, right? And the Sea of Galilee is not massive, but it's big. You know, we, we, before we put up pictures kind of comparing it to like Lake of the Ozarks and stuff like that, like it's, it's, it's a big old body of water. And because of some of the unique geography around that region, in that transitional period between the dry season and the rainy season, there are storms that can bubble up on the Sea of Galilee that are terrifying. They bubble up fast and you have very little warning. And these kind of fishing boats, if they were out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee when that happened, they'd be toast, They weren't built for this kind of thing. And so when Jesus says, hey, let's head over to the other side, they're not jumping in the boat and just going straight across. What these boats would do is they would kind of hop along the coast, going just out into some of the depths, then popping back and just out, staying as close to the shore as they could because these are shallow water boats. So Jesus, he's telling all his guys, hey, let's do this. Let's get everyone. Let's gather up. These boats only hold 12 to 15 people if you're not putting fish in them. So he's not taking a huge group with him. I don't know how many boats Peter, James, and John had, but it wasn't enough to take thousands of people with them, right? Jesus right now is is making a very stark delineation between the crowds and the disciples. Hey, if you're with me, if you're my people, jump on a boat. We're gonna go hang out, have a little retreat. Everyone else, go home. (laughs) Take, like, get some sleep. We'll get back to it later. And then we get this interesting scene where two people ask to come with Jesus. These are two folk who are trying to delineate themselves, right? Like, they are not a part of the crowd. They want to be disciples. And by the way, guys, this is a really helpful question. It's a helpful question in understanding the Gospels. It's a helpful question in understanding your faith right here and right now. Are you a disciple or are you part of the crowd? Are you a disciple or are you part of the crowd? Do you follow Christ? Are you given over to his ministry, to his person, to the work of the kingdom? Or are you there for what you get? It's an important question, one that comes up over the course of the Gospels and one that is just as sharp for us as followers of Jesus today. So Jesus presents this in a very stark way because he says, hey, if you're with me, jump in the boats, let's go, right? And all of a sudden, as they're making this delineation, two guys step up, and we're left with this really strange interaction. They want to be followers, not just members of the crowd. And our text gives us this, if we're being honest, this kind of cryptic interaction between Jesus and these two men. First, we get the scribe. Now, these guys were really unique in first century Judaism. Remember, most folk were not terribly literate in this day. The Jewish folk were rare in that a lot of the young men were taught to read but almost no one could write the way we think of like literacy, right? 
And so scribes were these professional scholars who could both read and write and who were tasked with preserving Jewish culture and Jewish theology. They not only preserved the scriptures, but they also preserved the teachings of the rabbis. They wrote down the teachings of the most famous rabbis. And and while scribes would often teach in the synagogue, they didn't teach new teachings. Rather, they preserved and retaught the interpretations and thoughts of the rabbis who came before. Guys, remember, this is the differentiation between Jesus and other teachers. He teaches with authority, not like the scribes, right? He teaches new thoughts, his own thoughts. But this scribe is here. He's part of the crowd, and he wants to be all in. He wants to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, most of us can really easily, easily miss this piece because we're, we're not terribly familiar with rabbis and rabbinic culture outside of Jesus himself. But the normal way in this day for a rabbi to gain a disciple is exactly what happens here. A student comes and applies to follow the rabbi. Jesus was relatively unique in being the kind of rabbi who handpicked his disciples. So this scribe, he's doing something normal and honoring in his culture. He's educated. He is one of the elites of Jewish society. He's the kind of guy who can preserve the teachings of Jesus. And he wants to get on the road and follow. Jesus' response would have been strange to anyone listening. Because rather than excitedly making room for such a potentially influential disciple, Jesus seemingly warns him off. You see this? He says, hey, I want to come with you. I'm all in. And Jesus' response is, yeah, cool, just so you know, ain't going to be a comfortable ride, man. I have no lodging arrangements set up and no plans to make any. So uh, I don't know if that's what you really want to do. I don't have anything, any visions of fame or social status if that's what you're aiming for. And then immediately the text moves us to this second disciple. This guy apparently had been following Jesus at least for a while because he's not called part of the crowd. He's called a disciple. And he refers to Jesus not as rabbi but as Lord. And look at what he says. He says, I want to go bury my father first. Now, really quick, on the surface, that seems like a pretty reasonable request, right? Like, hey, Jesus, I'm all in. I do have like a funeral (laughs) to attend to, so can I like get that done and then meet up with you guys? And in that that regard, Jesus' response seems kind of harsh, right? No, no, you can't do that, man. We're we're heading out right now. That seems pretty brutal, but, but there's something we can easily miss here again. And it comes down to this, guys. Essentially, it's this. That guy's dad isn't dead, okay? This isn't what it necessarily seems like at first. Because if he was, this guy wouldn't have been asking permission to go bury him, and he certainly wouldn't have been lingering. Jewish culture had pretty strict structures set up around burial of the dead, and specifically around patriarchs and how you handle the fathers within families. What's much more likely in this situation is that this is a guy who lives close to Capernaum, And his father is old or ill, right? He's close to death. And so what's happened is that this guy has been able to participate in Jesus' ministry while it's been local. But now it's expanding to larger parts of Palestine. And he basically says, hey, look, Jesus, I'm super into this. You know I'm all in. As soon as my family obligations are done, I'm all in. As soon as I take care of this stuff, I'll be back. And I'm in. I want to jump in on this awesome ministry And Jesus' response in that context is he just goes, that's not how it works, man. Sorry. The kingdom work is here and now. It's not going to wait. Jump in the boat or don't. But don't ask the kingdom to wait on you. (laughs) Again, I'll tell you, that's, that's still a pretty sharp response, right? But Jesus is saying here something that actually makes a ton of sense. Look, this work is bigger than Capernaum and it's happening right now and we're going. If you can't go, don't go. But if you're going to go, you have to forsake all and you have to go. There's no half in, half out. What's interesting about this scene, I think, is that we are given no closure. You notice that? I mean, how do these guys respond? Do they leave everything and follow Jesus like Peter, James, and John? Do they walk away disappointed like the rich young ruler? The text doesn't tell us. And it doesn't really point one way or the other. I have no idea. 
We don't know. These guys just said they want to follow. Jesus gives them this challenge, and the text moves on. I think the reason here is because the point of this particular narrative is not these specific followers, but what Jesus is teaching about what it means to follow him. He's saying to be a Christian means uncertainty about the comforts of this world. It means stepping up and prioritizing the kingdom of God over everything else. Guys, hear this. Even good things. Make no mistake, Jesus is giving a difficult teaching here. He's saying in no uncertain terms that it is difficult to follow him. You must choose if you are willing to pay that cost. He leaves you with that because that's big, because that's weighty, because that takes Sober reflection, and then the scene shifts. Whoever is following jumps in the boat with Jesus, and they head out. And as they make their crossing across the Sea of Galilee, two important things happen in our narrative. First, Jesus falls asleep. Second, a terrible storm comes along. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because it's not what this text is about, but I do think it's important to stop here for just, like, just a quick little pit stop and just to say this. Note that Jesus' response to a season of long and difficult work and ministry is to go to sleep. Now, that's not me joking. Like, Jesus' response to a season of long and difficult ministry was to get away and go to sleep because naps can be worship and there is nothing godly or honoring to the Lord about working yourself to death. That's not a thing. Jesus says, this is a lot. And he gets on the boat and he goes to sleep. And he sleeps pretty deep and pretty sound. There is a storm literally killing them. Jesus is under his thing, asleep, having a good old nap. Because once he goes to sleep, this is when the storm whips up. And again, this is relatively common in this region, right? This stuff can happen. It's why these boats don't go out in super deep water. But whatever, however it worked out, it was the perfect storm, pardon the pun, of just things not working out because these boats are in a place they shouldn't be. This storm is too powerful for them. And the text says they are swamping. It means the boats are filling up with water, right? These are, these are sailboats, <laughs> These don't have electronic or diesel-run bilges to empty them out. When these boats swamp, they sink. And when they sink, the people inside them die. And we know that it's a dire situation because the guys running these boats are professional fishermen. They spend six days a week inside these boats in these exact waters. They know what they're doing. And these guys' response is to go, oh, we're all about to die. <laughs> They're alarmed by this. This is a bad situation, right? And Jesus, in the midst of all of this, Jesus is still sleeping. He's sleeping through their death. And so their response, they've tried, presumably, they've tried all the things they know to try as professional fishermen who run these boats six days a week. They go, we need to wake up Jesus. At the very minimum, he should be aware of the situation, Right? They go and wake him up, but look how they wake him up. Jesus, save us. They wake him up. Look what's happening. We're dying. Save us. And Jesus' response here is twofold. First, he rebukes their lack of faith. Now, again, like this is like just a day for Jesus giving some hard teachings. I think a lot of times we like to think of the really comforting, beautiful, encouraging Jesus who's like, I love you no matter what. It's all good. But today Jesus is like, hey, it's really hard. Make sure you want to do this. What the heck are you guys doing? Why don't you have faith? What's your problem? Like while the boat's singing. This is, this is Jesus like speaking some hard words, right? He rebukes their lack of faith. And then once again, I want, to, I want to remind us, right? This is mere verses after he was praising the faith of a Gentile. And not just a Gentile, a Roman oppressor. And here he is rebuking a lack of faith in his closest followers. The ones who got up and jumped on the boat with no question. He's rebuking them. Hold on to that weird contrast because there's something important there for us. But after he rebukes them, he rebukes the storm. And I think this part is really important for us, guys. Jesus rebukes a storm and it listens. Now, guys, I feel like for many of us, these kind of narratives, especially if you've spent time in church, they just become so familiar 
that we kind of learn to begin to brush past them, right? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus calmed the storms. It's one of his miracles. I've heard about that my whole life going to Sunday school or whatever. But can we stop for a second? Jesus rebuked a storm, and the storm obeyed him. It obeyed him. Guys, I don't know about you. I'm a good Midwestern boy. I like storms. <laughs> but I like storms in a very specific way. I like to walk out into my front yard and watch the storm front go in and go, mmm, look at that front rolling in. That's going to be a big one. There might be some naders in there. That's what we all do. You all know this. The, like the, the tornado alarms go off and you kind of pull up your phone. And you're like, ah, it's probably in South County. And you just stand there and you keep watching them, right? We all do this. Don't, don't act like I'm the weird one in the room. We all do this. But once the sideways rain comes, then you go, I'm going to head inside. <laughs> I like watching the storm. I'm going to watch the rest of it from behind windows because, you know, wind, debris, wetness, all those things, right? We like storms. I don't know if you have ever tried to rebuke a storm. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Storms don't listen to you. Last night, I, I, have, I, have, I know they will remain unnamed, but one of my four children has, has, a, has a bad relationship with storms, which means... Anytime it's after dark and there's a rumble of thunder that's audible from inside the house, we have two hours of calming down a child. It doesn't matter what time it is. It doesn't matter how long they've been asleep. If there is an audible rumble of thunder when the sun is down, we have two hours of calming down a child. And here's the thing. That's like really sad and sweet and adorable, right? But it's also really pointless because the storm outside doesn't care how sad you are about it. Storm outside doesn't care how inconvenienced you are by it. Storm does not care your opinion about one thing or the other, right? It's a storm. Jesus tells this storm, you've inconvenienced me and my followers. Stop. And the storm stops. Can we sit with that for a second? As this is one of those miracles that's just, it's just easy to blow past, but it should not be. The word of Jesus has authority over nature, over creation. He tells the waves to stop splashing over the side of his boat, and they obey him. He tells the wind and the rain to calm down and be quiet. You're ruining a perfectly good nap. And they obey him. The creation submits to Jesus and does so for a very simple reason. He is the creator. He made the waves. He made the storm. And according to Colossians 1, he sustains their very existence. It is the pleasure of Christ that the water holds together, that the waves move, that the storm rolls in, that the raindrops fall, the thunder rolls, and the lightning strikes because it pleases Jesus to sustain them. It is by his word, his will, that they exist and continue to exist. And it is by his word and his will that they submit and obey. Guys, that's intense. That's big. That's the kind of God power that makes you step back and go, oh, shoot, I am very small. Right? You have no authority over the storm, but Christ does. It's not even difficult for him. It is merely at his word that the storm bows down and obeys and gives him calm water and clear sky. And guys, that's not even a big deal for Christ. It's a small matter for our Lord. Put, it puts you within your proper cosmic context. You're small. And let's be honest, we're weak. We have very little control over our environment, over the reality within which we find ourselves. But Christ, Christ has complete and total authority and domination over his creation. It submits to him. It exists by his pleasure. It continues at an act of his will. The weather and the waves obey Jesus, and his followers are floored. They're blown away, pardon the pun. <laughs> Who is this? The wind and the waves obey him. Now you sit there and you go, but they just saw him do all these miracles. Yeah, they saw him heal sick people. Just now, he told a storm to be quiet and it listened. I want you to imagine how you might respond to that experience. 
It's intense. It's sobering. It's powerful. They don't have a category for this Jesus because you can't categorize this Jesus. He's the creator. He's the God of reality. What a text. What a text. The wind and the waves obey him. So how does this all actually connect together? What is the thread that connects him rebuking some people who may or may not want to follow him and him telling the storm what to do? I think there's actually something really important here for us, and it's this, guys. Beloved, Jesus is the only Messiah worth following, pure and simple. He's the only God worth following, but to follow him is difficult. It's hard. And why is it hard? It's hard for the reasons we saw in Jesus' warning. Jesus is not content with part of you. The kingdom of God demands your all. Jesus demands your all. If you follow Jesus, like, and I mean like really follow Jesus, then you are giving all of yourself to it. And guys, that means something. That costs something. That looks like something very real in your life and the way you live. It means that your life will look different. And it's different in ways that are oftentimes painful. If you choose to really follow Christ, you will likely not experience the best comforts and pleasures that this world has to offer. It doesn't mean you don't, right? I'm not saying like this isn't something where I say you have to take some vow of poverty in order to follow Christ. But it is to say this. If you give yourself over fully to the kingdom, then your priorities shift and whether or not you experience and obtain the comforts and pleasures of this world is no longer your primary motivator. And so you may or you may not experience them, but ultimately, it's not your goal. It's not your end. And guys, that is a different way to live. It's a painful way to live. It's, it's, it's the kind of life where you prioritize your time, your lifestyle to the things of Jesus. You prioritize your lifestyle to the kingdom of God because foxes have holes and birds have nests, but Jesus has the work of the kingdom of God. And that becomes what you seek. In the kingdom, you even organize your family and priorities different. You let the dead bear their own dead. This doesn't mean you don't, you don't put effort into your relationships, right? It doesn't mean that you treat poorly your spouse or your family or your kids or whatever. But it does mean you don't put your marriage, your children, your siblings, your parents above the kingdom of God. Not that you don't forsake them, or not that you forsake them or mistreat them, but that you order your family, your family life around the kingdom. And yet it's a different way of living. It's a way of living that rejects marriage and intimacy and sexual connection and loving romance as an idol worth following because they're not. It's the kind of life that says, I love my spouse, but there are actually things more important to me in life and existence than my spouse, my creator. It's the kind of life that refuses to place family and children on an idolatrous pedestal. I love my kids. I'll do just about anything for them. But also, they're not the most important thing in the world to me. Our family life is submitted to and ordered around by King Jesus. That is a different way of living, a way of living that rejects the idolatry of children, the idolatry of family, the idolatry of comfort. Beautiful, good things, right? Hopefully, if those are the things you desire in life, you'll get married and have a million kids. Those are a wonderful way to live your life. It's a great thing. It's also a terrible Messiah to follow. It's also a terrible God to put up on a pedestal. Following Christ is different and it's difficult because we as human beings love our idols. We love them. In Jesus' parable of the seed, you guys remember this one? He gives this parable about uh, someone going out and sowing seed and it falls on different kinds of soil. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And, and essentially in, in the parable, the seed is the gospel being proclaimed and the different kinds of soil are the different kinds of people who hear the gospel and how they respond to it. If you remember in that parable, one of, the, one of the kinds of soil, the seed is mixed with weeds. And so as the plants grow, they are choked and they don't bear much fruit. Jesus says this represents those who seek the kingdom but also love this world. They have divided hearts. They love the pleasures of earth and it causes their faith to be choked and bear little fruit because Jesus is not content with 47% of you. The kingdom of God doesn't ask for your Sunday morning and your tithe. It asks for every bit of you. So beloved, this leaves us with a really important question. 
Do you follow Jesus? Do you follow him? Are you part of the crowd? I mean, do you really follow him? Are you the disciple or are you the crowd? Are you here at church because of what you're getting out of it? And I know that's a weird thing to say in a culture that is increasingly, you know, hostile toward traditional Christian expression, right? But there are lots of good things we can get out of church life. Connection to friends, love, feel goods, encouragement, community, all those things. Are you here because of those? Or are you here because you want to glorify Jesus with your life? Why are you spending your time the way you're spending it right now? You a follower of Christ? Are you part of the crowd? I'm going to land this out like this. Luke 14, I think, is really instructive for us today. I'm going to read this text. You can look it up if you want. This is Luke 14, starting in verse 25, but I'm going to read it to us. It says, now great crowds, notice that word, were traveling with Jesus. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is Jesus speaking in really sharp terms here. He's not telling you to hate them the way we think of it, but he's, the way this phrase was used in this time is to essentially say, unless you prioritize the kingdom above those things, you cannot be my disciple. Unless the kingdom of God stands over everything in your life, over marriage, over family, over career, even over your own life, your own pleasures, you're not my disciple. You may like me, you may hang out with me, you may enjoy what I give you, but you're not my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In verse 28, I think this is really instructive for us. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, that man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. He's saying, look, you gotta be all in. I want all of you. And Jesus tells the crowds very specifically, think about this. Weigh the cost. What do you actually want in this life? Do you want the best this world has to offer? Or do you want the kingdom of God? Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they're opposed. We can, right, we can ride that line for a season. You can leave one, one foot in your love of the world and love of the pleasures of the flesh and one foot in the kingdom. But if you try that, at some point, they will separate enough that you have to make a choice. Kingdom or this world? You cannot have both. You can't have both. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, it has to be, it has to be everything. It has to get all of you. Beloved, do not be foolish. I know this is hard, but hear this. Don't be foolish. Don't be surprised by what kind of soil you are or what kind of fruit your life of faith bears. Consider it. Consider it. Think about the desires of your heart. Count the cost. What do you love more? Christ or the world? Whew. It's important to consider. Now, if you're like me, and I ask you that question, your answer probably is something like, it's complicated, right? I want to be all in for Jesus. And sometimes, maybe sometimes I even am, or have at least glimmers of that, but I also really love this world. If I'm being honest with you, I really love a lot of good things this world has to offer, and I really love a lot of bad things this world has to offer. I'm a mess. I want to be a disciple. I want to count the costs, but I also really love my possessions and really enjoy my creature comforts. I love the normal cultural family systems and the way they build me up and make me feel secure and I get to pour myself out into those who are closest to me. I enjoy those things and I want them as well. Yes, I want the kingdom. I want to be all in, but I also do want the things of this world. I'm a contradiction of differing motivations and I'm sure that if you're being honest, you are as well. So what the heck do we do? 
Who will save us from this wretched body of death? Things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing them. Woe is me. What do we do with that? I think it's so easy to hear a text like this, to hear your pastor challenge you like this and just be wrecked by how terrible we are at faith, right? We get asked these hard questions. What do you love more, Jesus or the world? It's an important question. When we sit back and we see how divided our desires actually are, we take a moment of sober self-reflection and it hurts. I know it does for me. It can feel like it takes some kind of superhero faith to actually be devoted enough to be a true follower of Jesus. Because this is where our text is so helpful and this is where we're actually gonna land today. If, uh, I don't know if someone's coming back up, but if they wanna come back up, this will be the good time to do it. Because remember, remember the poor in spirit in the Beatitudes in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? The poor in spirit, the ones who are bad at faith, Jesus says those are the ones who are blessed. Those are the ones who actually receive the kingdom. It wasn't the superhero faith of the disciples that turned them to him in the storm. I mean, Jesus rebuked their faith, right? They were doing poorly in that moment. The Gentile Roman, he had faith. But the actual disciples... The ones who said yes to Jesus and God in the boat, they were scared out of their wits. Their faith was crumpling in the reality of the storm that faced them. They were scared and hurting and worried. But they turned to Jesus. You see that? They turned to Jesus. Even in their lack of faith, they wake him up and they say, Jesus, save us. We can't do anything. We have nothing else to do. We tried everything. Jesus, save us. Beloved, this is the gospel. Not that you are so deserving. Not that you get the kingdom of God because of your amazing devotion and your wonderful faith. Not that you earn your standing in the kingdom and receive what you deserve. No, 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 no. But that God in his mercy gives us the kingdom even though we don't deserve it. When our faith is weak, when our desires are divided, when we're honestly really more like the crowd than like a disciple. Beloved, this is where Jesus steps in. The only true Messiah, the only God worth following, the only one with real power and real authority. He works for us and his work here, this church, his work on your behalf is enough Christ is enough. And beloved, that's enough. So turn to him. Even in your your mixed mess of motivations, even in your lack of faith, even in the part of you that goes, I actually really love this world, and if I'm being honest, I'm definitely a crowd member. I don't want to be, but it's where I am. Turn to him. Turn to him in your lack of faith. Jesus is actually really great and making disciples out of crowd members. Because he's God. Because he is sufficient. Because his grace for you, his work for you, are enough to overcome the mess that is your heart. Take a minute and pray with me, church. We're gonna end with just a time of response. If the band folk wanna come back up. Are they coming back up? Okay. I wanna invite you guys just to take a minute in prayer. And consider this question that Jesus has posed to you. I want to invite you to consider it soberly. Are you actually a disciple of Jesus? Do you actually want him, do you actually want the kingdom above what this world has to offer? And even as I say that, right, like we all know where that answer is going in your heart. <laughs> but I want to invite you to ask it anyway. Let those hard words from Jesus hit your soul afresh. What do you love more, the world or the kingdom? What do you want more, Jesus or this world? And be honest. Jesus knows your heart. You are not gonna succeed in hiding anything from him. But I think what you'll be blessed by today is when you hear his response. That he's sufficient. That he's able 
to make you a disciple in spite of yourself. Take a few minutes in prayer, and then we're going to respond with communion.